Wow, thank you very much. That was awesome. What an introduction. Well, guys, good morning. So they left the door, unlocked at Vine again, and I found my way here. <coughs> it is my pleasure to introduce this sermon series called Could We Be Wrong? Now, we called it that because it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian since before I can remember. Some of you know I was raised in like a baptist type church, and as I've said a million times, but it still bears repeating, when you are raised in a Baptist-style church, you know, you get saved three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday for like the duration of your childhood. So I was plenty saved, a lot and often. And, you know, it doesn't matter how long you're a Christian, there might be a point where you just get done with your morning devotions, or maybe you're at the Christian bookstore and you see the walls of Bibles, and you ask yourself, maybe you don't even welcome the question, right? It just pops up like, Jesus? really? I just got done praying to a guy that I believe was God and came 2,000 years ago, like, across the ocean and died and then came back to life. I believe that? Really? Could I be wrong? I was like, oh, I was like, oh what do you do with that question? Now it's there, you know what I mean? Or like you, you're, you're opening your Bible and you're like, the word of God? Really? It's kind of in English and stuff right? Like, and it's 2019, and I believe that this was given to us a couple thousand years ago. Could we be wrong? And <gasps> what do I do with that question? I'm here to tell you, you are not some horrible unsaved pagan, if that's ever occurred to you. You are a human being. Congratulations. We're a room full of humans. Yay! So, in those moments, which are only natural, you have an opportunity to reaffirm and reestablish your faith. That is what this sermon series is meant to do. And today we are going to do that, talking about the Bible. <clears throat> We've all asked ourselves, can we trust the Bible? And if you haven't, you should, because when you ask those questions, your faith goes deeper. Can we trust that the Bible is the Word of God? Before I start, I want to say that this is a message to encourage Christians, okay? There are plenty of good books written that go into the details about, you know, trusting the text and all that stuff. Here is one of them. This is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by two guys named Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. It is, look how fat that is. You will be entertained the whole time, I promise you. It's engagingly written, it's funny, you might even laugh once or twice, and the information in this is absolutely amazing. So just know humbly that if there's anything I say today and you're like, wow, that was really good, I'm saying other people's good stuff, okay? And here is where a lot of it is. So if you're curious for more of a deep dive about this stuff, I really suggest hopping on Amazon and getting that book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. But let us begin with my sermon that I hope to encourage you with. I hope Christians will dive into the Bible, and I hope that non-Christians, in fact all of us, will be drawn by this message to the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Awesome. Here we go. Do we even need a Bible? Do I need some book to tell me how to have a relationship with God? Can I do this one-on-one? -on -one? Can it just be a me and God thing? Can I just kind of figure it out as I go? Why do I need some ancient text to be my authority in my relationship with God? To answer this question, which is really foundational, I want to talk about the story of the elephant. Has anybody heard this? Yeah? So the way it goes is that some blind men are wandering around, and they find an elephant, but they don't know what it is. So they grab onto different portions of the elephant that they don't know is an elephant, and they start describing what it is that they're grabbing. 
So one of them grabs the tusks, and he says, well, this thing is a spear. And another one grabs the leg and says, you're out of your mind, spear guy. This is like a tree. And another one is at the side of the elephant, and he says, no, it's like a wall. Some guy grabs the tail. Let's hope he grabs the tail and doesn't miss. And he says, no, it's like a rope. And another guy grabs the ear, and he says, I don't know what you guys are talking about. What we have here is something way more like a fan, okay? And this story is used to tell you that maybe, even though we have all these religions in the world that are, I mean, no way around it, they are vastly different, right? Vastly different. But maybe, just maybe, each of these different religions isn't wrong. They're just grabbing a different piece of one whole thing, and no... No one of us has the whole answer, right? So therefore, we just shouldn't judge other religions. There's no such thing as absolute truth in religions, and we should just go along to get along. You can ruin this, though, <laughs> if the elephant speaks up and says, actually, I'm an elephant. That's my leg. Those are my teeth. It's my tail. It's my side. Those are my ears. And this is what we have in the Bible. The only hope that we have to understand a God who is beyond our understanding is that that God will reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand. You can't figure it out. It's beyond your figuring out. You can't understand it. It's beyond your understanding. But if he chooses to disclose what he's about and who he is in a way you can understand, that you can receive. That is what the Bible is. It's the written record of God's self-disclosure. We good so far? Okay. So the elephant talks. We don't get to do this stuff. We know it's an elephant. Now, would God reveal himself to us? There's all kinds of quote-unquote gods and all kinds of different religions, and you may have noticed some of them are not particularly nice, right? Some of them are rather nasty, you know? Do we have a God that would be willing to reveal himself to us poor, lowly people that are desperate for him to reveal himself or will never get it. Do we have that kind of God? Yes, we do. Thank you, Laura Shockley. The short answer is yes, we do. She's like, get on with it, man. We know. So check it out. This is from the very first book of the Bible, right? This, God can barely help himself from revealing himself. God makes Adam and Eve. They promptly stab him in the back. What does he do? He shows up, right? They have a kid who also messes up. What does God do? He shows up. The world becomes corrupt, right? The Bible says it's like totally filled with evil. Does God just flush the whole thing? No. Instead, he shows up. He floods the world and saves the people that are righteous. And after the world dries out, guess what? He shows up to encourage them, to reaffirm his promise. And then he shows up again a little later down the road to call a guy named Abram to start his own nation. He's like, Abram, we're going to call you Abraham from now on. And me and you are going to do a pretty incredible thing. And then he keeps showing up to encourage Abraham, to encourage Abraham's sons. And that's just in the first book of the Bible. <laughs> it's like he's driven to reveal himself. It's like he can barely contain himself from saying, hello, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Hey, you messed up. Let's do this instead. Hey, things are looking pretty dire. I've got a plan. Hey, you're pretty downtrodden and depressed. Here's some encouragement. At this point, you should be encouraged and maybe even chuckling, but you should also be asking, Why? The story starts with us slapping him in the face. Why is he so desperate, so driven, so compelled, it seems, to reveal himself to people that just couldn't understand him any other way? Good question. We will close with the answer. But something happens when you get to the second book of the Bible. 
God's already been revealing himself. He's already been talking and encouraging and instructing. But with Moses, maybe God realizes how thick we are, and maybe we get a little bit smarter. I'm not sure which one. But we decided it'd probably be a good idea to write stuff down, right? Crazy talk. Exodus 24, 3 to 4. Moses is telling the people this amazing download he gets from God, and this is what the Bible says. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is important. Not only does God seem driven to reveal himself to us, and we needed that because we couldn't figure it out on our own. He wants a written record of what he said. So a little later in the story, God makes a date with Moses and says, you're going to meet me on the top of this big scary mountain, and I'm going to rip out a couple chunks of rock, and I am going to write down with my own hand the law, how I want you to live, how I expect your, you know, everything to be conducted when you're going to be my people. This is God telling his people, you know, what he's about, how he wants them to live. It's a big deal. Moses comes down from the mountain with the stone tablets written by the hand of God and sees the people already in rebellion. He gets super mad, and what does he do? He throws down the tablets and breaks them. Everybody go, aww. Now, what a cop-out this would be, right? Like, it's like, guys, for real, I promise, I swear, I totally had these stone tablets that God wrote, but like, I just got so mad I broke them. Oops. Like, we could be like, yeah, I mean, they would have been there, but Moses broke them. You know what I mean? What a cop-out. No. God actually says in Exodus 34, this time you're cutting the dang tablets, but I'm going to write it again. You will have a written record of who I am and how I expect you to live. It's super important to God, and you can read about that in Exodus chapter 34. He desperately wants us to know his character, and what he expects from us. We couldn't figure it out any other way. He goes through an awful lot of trouble to make sure we get it. You might ask yourself, why? Perhaps I will close with the answer to that question. Moses' successor is a young man named Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, God tells him this, which isn't a bad reminder for us today. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. I love God's motive. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. God had to reveal himself to us if we were going to know anything about him. The only hope we have to understand a God who is beyond our understanding is that that God will reveal himself in a way we can understand. That is what the Bible is. He intended that revelation to be written down, and he intended it to be remembered. Are we good so far? That was just the intro. Right. So we can see that God is dealing with some obstinate kids, and he is going to great lengths to make sure that we get it through our heads, what he's about, and how he expects us to live. So, okay, we've got this, this written stuff, right, that we call the Old Testament. But can I actually trust it? Can I actually believe that it's accurate? Let me talk about what I think 
is the most logical argument against trusting the Bible. And when you think about it, this only makes sense. And that's the childhood game of telephone. Have you guys played this? So when you play telephone, you make a circle, usually, and somebody at the beginning picks a phrase or a word, and you whisper it, right, to the person next to you. And that person is supposed to hear you and remember and whisper it to the next person. You don't want to be too loud, right? Because if more than just the person next to you hears, it ruins the game. And the point of the game, they tell you, is to see if you can make that phrase go all the way around the circle and get it right. How many of you know that is not the purpose of the game of telephone? The purpose is to see what a jumbled mess you can make. That was not intentional, but amen. What a jumbled mess you can make of the original phrase, and then everybody laughs, right? That's the purpose of the game of telephone. And that is the opposite of what we have going on with the Old Testament scriptures. When I want to store information, this might shock you guys, but I write it probably on Google Docs and save the file on my computer. Is this how most of us store important information today, right? And now we have the cloud, whatever the heck that actually is. So even if my computer is destroyed, the information is still safe. Where is it stored? The cloud, right? So, but my information is secure in this cloud. Back in the day, the storage place for information was the community. It was an oral tradition, and they took their traditions very seriously. So if we were going to compare it to the game of telephone, it would be as if I had something important to say, and I didn't whisper it because I don't want it to be secret. I said it out loud, not to just the person next to me, but to this whole room. And I said, you got it? And you said, yes. And I said, Merrily, now please repeat what I just said. And then Merrily would do her best out loud in the presence of all of us to repeat what I just said. And if she gets something wrong, there is a corrective mechanism called us, right? And when she gets it right, we move on to Bill, and then Micah, and then Joe, and then Andy. The point is not to play a game. The point is to accurately transmit the information. This is how oral cultures did it from generation to generation. They took it very seriously. It's not telephones. Does that make sense? Awesome. Now for kind of a bummer. That felt like that was, that was encouraging, right? Yay, they were so sure about the information. They were. But I cannot tell you that we know for sure when exactly the Old Testament was settled on. The Old Testament is mysterious, man. It's a long time ago, dude. We're talking like 3,000 years ago, okay? So real talk, we had tons of copies of the Old Testament books in Hebrew. Before Jesus came around, they were even translating it into Greek. You know, we call that the Septuagint. But there was some bickering back in the day about which books were authoritative and which books weren't. Most of the books that they argued about were called the Apocrypha. Has anybody heard that term? You know, and, you know, maybe it's like somebody quotes from the book of Maccabees, and it sounds so mysterious, and you're like, oh, are they a heretic? And they just mentioned some book called Tobit. It sounds so mysterious. Oh, my gosh, what's going on? You know what I mean? Well, the Apocrypha were books that were written in the exile period, you know, so between what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, you know, most of them aren't bad. They're not, like, horrible and demonic, but they're not sacred scripture. They never got the wholesale buy-in that these are the words of the Lord. You can read the book of Maccabees. In fact, many of my seminary professors actually suggested it to us. 
one of my professors, Dr. Turner, uh, got up one day, and he had this really dry sense of humor, and he's like, what book of the Apocrypha were you guys reading in your devotions this morning? And he kind of looks at us like this, like knowing that we're all like, none, Dr. Turner. And then he's like, hmm, and starts class. Like, what the heck was that about, you know? But he liked to troll us because he believed you read Maccabees for the history, man. You read it for the context. You read it for the culture. There's some good stuff there. But it is distinct from Holy Scripture. Does that make sense? And so we don't know when exactly it happened. We don't know how exactly it happened, but there was large-scale agreement among the Jews of the Old Testament period coming into the first century about what was Scripture and what wasn't. And we have the record of the first century historian Josephus saying, look, man, we've got our sacred Scriptures, and they are set. And that's it. So when exactly did it get set? Not going to lie to you and say that on Thursday in 1500 B.C., a golden scroll fell down, and there was handwriting from God saying, this is it. But we do know that they knew what was sacred scripture and what wasn't. And what was sacred had been protected and preserved painstakingly and passed down through the generations up until today. Does that make sense? You guys ready for something way cool and a lot more encouraging than that? All right. I got to bring real talk, too. I can't just lie to you. So, hey, there we go. All right. Anybody heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yay. This is where it gets fun. Now, there's crazy stuff in the Old Testament. So we have a book called Daniel, and in Daniel, some of the prophecies are so crazy accurate about what was going to happen in the coming centuries that some people still believe that it must have been written after the fact to get it so right. Like people that can't believe it's actually a prophecy from God are like, the only explanation we've got is that somebody wrote this later to look like a mysterious prophecy. There's all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament about Jesus like that too. Read in Isaiah chapter 7, I believe it is where they say, you know, the virgin will give birth, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's, like, impossible to read that and not think Jesus is a Christian, right? In Isaiah chapter 52, where they start talking about the servant of the Lord, into Isaiah 53, and it's like, he was pierced for our transgressions, by his stripes we are healed. You're like, oh my gosh, that's the crucifixion. Like, how could it not be? It's so obvious. And it's so obvious that people would say, well... It seems like the crucifixion because it was written after it happened. Yeah, man. So we just kind of snuck that in there. You know, it's like a conspiracy to somehow make Jesus look legit. Okay, keep that in the back of your mind because you could make that argument for a while until approximately 1947. You know, things decay. Paper decays. Animal skins decay. Unless, maybe... You were to find a place that looked like this, super dry, say, around the Dead Sea, and you were to stick some scrolls in a jar and seal the jar and put them in a cave. Suddenly, the shelf life on those things is approximately 1,947 years because some shepherd boy in 1947 was trying to scare his goats out of one of these caves and threw a rock at them and heard a jar crack. He discovers the first of 12 caves that have hundreds of jars with hundreds of scrolls from a Jewish community before Jesus. That's awesome. So some of these scrolls are like from 200 BC. Is that pre-Jesus? Like we can all agree, right? Okay, absolutely. 200 BC, well before Jesus. Check it out. There are parts of or whole copies of every Old Testament book except Esther. 
including a scroll we call the Great Isaiah Scroll. Would anyone like to hazard a guess as to what is on the Great Isaiah Scroll? The Book of Isaiah. Crazy. The one with the whole Emmanuel, virgin birth, pierced for our transgression stuff. Is that not sweet? From before Jesus, from a community that was not a Christian community. That's amazing. That was a game changer, man. So can you trust the Old Testament? Yeah, I think you can. You know, its prophecies are confirmed. It was painstakingly, painstakingly recorded and preserved on purpose. All right, let's move on to the New Testament. That was pretty cool. We're just getting into the cool stuff. The New Testament is a whole nother deal. If the origin of the Old Testament is kind of hazy at points, the origin of the New Testament is not. We can absolutely trace how and why an official list of books came about. And interestingly, we got an official list of books called a canon thanks to a heretic. Everybody say boo. Boo, heretic. And the heretic's name is Martian. That's <laughs> awesome. It's oh, a great heretic name. Anyway, so this guy Martian compiles a list of books that he says is the official list of scriptures, right? And now the early church, this is super important, guys. They'd had the gospels for a long time, and they were not in question. They'd had the writings of Paul for a long time, and they were not in question, okay? They were taking this for granted, because of course these are authoritative. This guy gives this official list of books, and the, er the Orthodox Church is like, these are garbage books. Like, where did this guy even get this nonsense? It apparently didn't occur to anybody that somebody would do such a thing, as to compile a fake list of books. So the church is like, we got to respond, man. We have to call out what's fake, because suddenly... More and more Gospels are popping up. Oh, it's crazy. Like the lost writings of Peter. You know, Peter's younger brother Sam writes a book. I don't know. It's like all these books. And the church is like, these are trash, but we better say they're trash so that people don't get, you know, led astray. So they did that, and they also started compiling an official list. We have the very first compilation of official books in 180 AD, which is pretty darn early. It's called the Muratorian Canon. And it contained 22 of our eventual 27 books of the New Testament. So the Muratorian Canon actually did not include Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, or Third John as being absolutely for sure divine scripture. Does that mean that we should all like open our Bibles and rip those out? No. It means that they were taking this very seriously. They only wanted to include books that they knew for sure were the words of God. But the first attempt did a pretty good job of nailing it. 22 already in 180 AD. The rest, by the way, and as I said, the church is in large, largely in agreement about what's authoritative and what's not. They're not bickering and arguing about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know what I mean? There's mostly consensus. It's really just, you know, a couple of books that people are on the fence about. But in 397, they went ahead and they compiled the official list at the Council of Carthage and they closed the canon. No more can be added, and nothing should be subtracted, so they said. But why would they have to do that if everyone agreed on the books anyway? And the reason is threefold. This, by the way, is from the book Judaism Before Jesus, which I also use all the time. It is brilliant. New books kept popping up that weren't legitimate. I mean, more and more people were coming up with these official writings that were obviously not official. So we had to have an official list to protect ourselves from the new unofficial stuff. Does that make sense? 
Second, they had this newfangled invention called a codex. And when you had a codex, you could put multiple manuscripts together, much like our modern day books, but they didn't have a printing press. Trouble is, they can't be endless, right? You can only fit so many texts in a codex, so they wanted to bind the official texts together. And third, the emperor Diocletian did not like Christians. He felt like Christianity was a threat to Rome and its traditional gods, and he made a decree in AD 303 that lasted until 311 that said the Christian texts were to be destroyed and people possessing them were to be executed. The early church was in a hurry to compile an official list of Christian texts so that they could die for the correct writings, proving that they were way more hardcore than most of us. And I don't know if we should be rebuked or encouraged, probably both. So the, um, the, the Christian church compiled this official list. How did they decide what went in the list? You guys, I mean, come on. We live in the time of, like, you know, conspiracy theories and, you know, all this crazy stuff, right? That, oh, the early church was a conspiracy. They picked only the books they wanted in there, and they left out so many good ones. That's crazy talk. Here were the criteria. The church wanted official books to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. The books had to be true, not full of falsehoods and fantasy. It had to be in agreement with other scriptures that we knew for sure was the word of God. And it had to have been used and recognized by the church. Pretty good tests. It's not a conspiracy. I, I mean, I can't say that enough. It's, it's so weird, some of the things you hear. Bruce Metzger is a scholar, and he says it this way. The canon, the official list, is a list of authoritative books more than it's an authoritative list of books. These documents didn't derive their authority from being selected. Each one was authoritative before anyone gathered them together. They picked the legitimate books. The books were not legitimate because they picked them. Does that make sense? And when you think about this logically, it's a no-brainer because if it was a conspiracy, if they were only picking the books that they really wanted people to think were official, who was going to be the guy in that room that's like, oh, man, all that stuff about how we're going to be hated by the world? Oh, man, we got to put that in there. All that thing where he talks about how he hates divorce, dude, oh, so in. All of that part where he says, like, pick up your cross or you're not worthy of me? Man, oh, man, let's go. Yeah, that's, that's the good stuff, man. I get warm fuzzies. Let's put that in there. Come on, dude. <laughs> like, read the New Testament. Like, you get beat up by that your whole life. You know what I mean? I mean, it's encouraging, too. But, man, oh, man, they were concerned with picking the scripture that was really the word of God. That was their concern. Everybody said amen. amen. Awesome. You guys want some fun facts? All right. We don't have originals of any ancient manuscripts because they're ancient. Uh-huh. It's crazy. <laughs> and the original copies are long gone, turned to dust. But we do have some from very close and some from not so close. So if anybody's ever read Plato, our earliest surviving manuscript is probably 1,200 years removed from Plato's original writings. If you've ever read Pliny, I have not, but maybe you're more of a scholar than I have. 750 years, the writings of Tacitus, another grand uh, Herodotus, if you've read him, good for you. You can explain him to me. 1,400 years. Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, we have a really early copy. It's only 500 years after the original. But the New Testament 
we have surviving copies, manuscripts, that are probably only 25 years from the writing of the original. Do you realize if you went nuts and quadrupled that, you're still only at 100. And that's like the next day when you're talking about ancient literature. That is crazy close. It's almost like they knew they had the words of God, and they were in a hurry to, like, write that down. It's like, you know, if you get a writing from Peter, and you know it's from Peter, and you know Peter was, like, with Jesus, you know what I mean? Saw him, like, crucified and come back to life. And he's like, hey, here's a word from Jesus. You take that pretty darn seriously, do you not? You would believe without question, like, this is the word of the Lord through his man, Peter, right? Or Paul, or James. You'd be up all night copying that thing. Everybody in your church would want a copy of that. So if the Bible is really the word of God, we would expect ancient manuscripts to just be littered all over Europe and North Africa and the Middle East, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, the number of ancient manuscript copies that we have of the New Testament is laughably more. That Nothing is close to being close to being close. We have well over 5,000 manuscripts that are whole books or portions of books of the New Testament. Homer is next with 643 at the time of the writing of this book. That's nuts, man. I mean, and this Diocletian guy, remember, he had an active persecution of the church, and he was destroying manuscripts. And this is still what we've got. And even if Diocletian destroyed every single manuscript of the New Testament, the early church fathers from the first couple centuries quoted scripture so prolifically that I think we have the whole New Testament except 11 verses just from their letters. That's crazy, man, because they were interested in communicating scripture, not their opinions, right? It was like, hi, I'm Anthony, chapters of scripture, have a good day. Because it was the scripture that was important. It was the word of God that they wanted to transmit. Man, we are just, tri I had a guy come to my undergrad named John Carroll, and uh, he was a scholar, he was a friend of my professor. Dude, it was like meeting Indiana Jones in real life. I mean, he had the old leather jacket and like the hat and everything and like the, the weathered face and kind of like the sad, serious eyes, you know what I mean? But he was super humble. Like, yeah, totally, absolutely. And he had jet lag at the time, so he was like super intimidating. His job was to go around the world and evaluate ancient manuscripts. The guy read like Aramaic and Babylonian and Sumerian there's only a few people in the world that know what this guy knew, and he happened to go to my professor's church, and he had just come back from Turkey the, the day before with a haul of ancient manuscripts, which he passed around my class, like, with like encased in glass with, like, little clips on the side, and he's like, these haven't been appraised yet, so be careful. They'll probably sell for a couple million each. It's nuts, man. I couldn't believe what I was looking at, but we are tripping over ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Why? Because people believed that it was the word of God. They took it seriously, and they copied the snot out of that stuff. Amen. More cool stuff. Nope, I'm going backwards. Don't do that. It's never good, especially in a message. We'll go forward, only forward. The New Testament, which is so amazingly corroborated, refers to the Old Testament as God's word. This is pretty sweet. Check out these verses. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, Peter says, Know this first of all, must be important, no prophecy or scripture, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is Peter saying the Old Testament texts are the word of God. And you might say, come on, he just says prophecy. I mean, he doesn't just say all the texts. He says the prophecy. Like, okay, well, here's another one. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. The whole Old Testament. Here's another one. The disciples were pretty sad. They used to be a jolly group of 13, but Jesus had just been crucified, and Judas killed himself. So now they're 11. The mood is not so high. Peter addresses the group and says this. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, get this, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then he quotes some psalms. But this is Peter saying, David might have wrote the poem, but that was the Holy Spirit speaking through David. Jesus attests to this same phenomenon. In Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Jesus says this. He answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, that's God, right? Made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So get this. This is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, so he should know what God said, right? And he's saying, Didn't you read? that God said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife? The interesting thing is, if you go back and read Genesis 2.24, that Jesus is quoting, those are the words of the author of Genesis. The author does not say, and God said, this is why a man shall leave his father and mother. The author just says, this is why a man shall leave his father and mother. Jesus, God in the flesh, is putting his stamp of approval on the words of the author as God's word. I think he's qualified to judge. That's pretty awesome. And even more than that, the New Testament authors themselves were aware that they were writing scripture too. Peter and Paul, two of, I don't know if I could hang out with either one of them, to be completely honest. They're pretty intense dudes. But they like bickered back and forth. If you read Galatians, it's pretty funny. I think it is hilarious that we have a verse in the Bible where Peter is talking about Paul's writings. But we do. And look at what he says. This is pretty awesome. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, <laughs> which ignorant and unstable people distort. Ouch as they do the other scriptures. So even though Peter and Paul had their differences, Peter knows for sure what Paul says is given to him by God, and it belongs in the context of holy scripture, inspired by God. So we've just taken a really long journey in a short amount of time, actually, from like oral traditions before writing all the way up to the New Testament, and, you know, it seems like God has gone through an awful lot of trouble, does it not? Preserving his word, making sure we got it, making sure that we understand what he's trying to communicate to us because we couldn't figure it out any other way. 
And this leads us right to Jesus. Not only because the person of Jesus, I think, is the best reason for believing the Bible at all. We'll talk about Jesus. He gets his own week. The evidence for Jesus being a real person outside the Bible is astounding. When you consider that this guy was a peasant crucified for being a revolutionary in some far corner of the Roman Empire that never held any big position, the fact that we have anything written about him at all is amazing, but we do. So he's the centerpiece of the Bible. He's probably the best reason for believing the Bible. And I think Jesus gives us the why. I think Jesus shows us why God has been driven, compelled to go through so much trouble to reveal himself to us. The Old Testament says the same thing in two different verses. In Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16, it says, There is a way that seems right, but the end is death. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Jesus echoed those thoughts in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. What drives God to reveal himself to us who stabbed him in the back the first chance we got? Why? I think, guys, it's because these two things are absolutely true. There's a way that seems right that leads to death. And he knows that if we're left to our own devices, we will instinctively choose ways of thinking, ways of feeling, ways of acting, ways of believing that we will think are right that lead to death. And God does not want us to die. He wants us to live. This is the driving heart of God. If the Bible is not a love story that is about Jesus wanting to redeem and reclaim his kids, it doesn't make sense. This is the only motivation that makes the whole thing work. This is why God went through the trouble. This is why he came in person as the living word, and this is why he died for you and me. He wants us to live, man. So can you trust the Bible? Yes, you can trust the Bible, and this is why you have it because we couldn't understand God without him revealing himself to us. He did it so that we could live. Does that make sense? Let's go ahead and have every head bowed and every eye closed. I would just encourage you today, Anthony, are you going to do an old school altar call? Oh, yes. Because this is the point. Father God, thank you. Thank you for going through the trouble to communicate with us for thousands of years when we didn't want to hear it we didn't want you around and we certainly didn't do it thank you for not giving up on us god thank you for wanting us to live even when it seemed like we were bound and determined to choose death thank you for the bible if there's anyone here today that is feeling god reach out to them you know what he hasn't stopped revealing himself he hasn't stopped communicating to humanity he still loves you he still wants you to live and if you've never said, yes, Lord, I would encourage you to do that today. And I would encourage you to just pray this prayer with me right now. Say, Jesus, I repent for my sin. I acknowledge that you died for and because of me. Thank you. Lord, I choose to serve you as Lord. Please be my Savior. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, please talk to me. Nothing makes a pastor. This is why we do what we do, man. You know, because we want people to live and not die. Shocking. Tell everybody you can tell, man. Tell your neighbor. Come to the prayer team. Talk to me. Talk to Marilee or Bill. Let somebody know. Something dramatic just happened. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Marilee to close. Thank you.